Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. Hello, Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. Super excited to dive into your questions this weekend's live stream Q&A. Before we get things started, want to encourage you to check out Rebel Capitalist Live, the incredible investment macro conference. Going to absolutely blow your mind. The next one is in Orlando, May 12th through the 14th. And to check out the speakers that we have lined up so far, awesome guys and gals like Mike Maloney, Lynn Alden, Robert Barnes, Kenny McElroy, Chris McIntosh, Hartman, Helms is going to MC, Simon Black, Peter Schiff is going to be in the house. <laughs> probably maybe doing a couple debates. And my good buddy, Brent Johnson, going to be up here as well. And uh, we're obviously adding two or three more speakers. So you're not going to want to miss this. It's going to be incredible. I can't wait. You can get your tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com. Get them as soon as you can, because as we get closer to the event, as you guys know, they go up in price. All right, let's get straight over to your questions for the evening. See what we got going on here. If most people have access to the world's top economists, critical thinkers, and their view, wouldn't it make sense that most people are in line to take advantage of an economic downturn? This assumes most people are rational. <laughs> oh, and is that far from the case? <laughs> or far from the truth, I guess I should say. And then I think you have to ask yourself who the world's top economists, critical thinkers are. You may have a group that you would consider critical thinkers, but that may be the opposite of someone else. So I think that's completely subjective, first and foremost. And then assuming that it even was objective, then you've got to say people are emotional, reactionary. I mean, my goodness gracious, cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, narrative-driven, tribal, all of those things. So even if they had access to perfect information, would they make perfect decisions? No chance. No chance. And I think understanding these are the tendencies based on our human hardwiring is an edge. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have not bought a asset, you know, put in my portfolio because I wanted to so badly, but I knew I was following the herd or I knew that I was allowing my emotions to get the best of me. Let me give you a great example. Let's go back three months. And this is when everybody was talking about recession, 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 including me. And I would sit there and look at the yield curve and I would say, how is it, how can we avoid this? It's like, it's inevitable, maybe imminent. And I would say, boy, you know, I've got to, I've got to do something with my portfolio, take advantage of this downturn, you know, the short side, or who knows what it would be. And I, I can't, you know, I'm like, there, there's, it has to happen. It has to happen. It has to happen. And even though everyone was on the same side of the boat, I, I, I kept saying, you know, it, it, this time it has to be different. Yes, I understand that everyone, including CNBC, is talking about this nonstop. But look at the yield curve, for heaven's sakes. This time it's got to be different. The masses have to be right. Wrong. And what I realized, and I'm sure what we've all realized, is yes, we're, we're most likely going to have a recession. But it's most likely, I mean, we may be in it now. But when we start to see the unemployment numbers really reflect the fact we're in a recession, 
or when the data gets so bad, the mainstream media and the top economists can't ignore the fact that we're in an economic recession or economic depression. That's going to take time. And what we're seeing now is the narrative gradually move from recession, recession, recession to, wow, this is going to be a soft landing. And the Fed is a miracle maker. Look, it's all of our dreams are going to come true. The central planners have pulled it off, meaning we have this 9% inflation. And the central planners and all their brilliance are going to be able to bring inflation back down to 2% without causing a recession. And therefore, you should load up on tech stocks. Therefore, anything Kathy Woods puts in her portfolio, you should buy. Risk on, risk on, risk on, risk on. Because the Fed's going to pause, because inflation is coming down. And when they pause and pivot, it's off to the races again, so you might as well front run that. Oh, but what about a recession? There's not going to be a recession. Everybody's thinking that three months ago. You know that stupid yield curve? That's dead. And just look at the unemployment numbers, you see. So I, I think what we saw is the narrative, recession, 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 even with the mainstream media. And I was right there. I was right there. I, I made that mistake. And I guess the mistake I made was assuming it was imminent instead of saying, whoa, 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 we're definitely going to have it. But the fact that everyone in the mainstream media right now is agreeing with me most likely means that it, it's not happening right now, or at least they won't admit it. And the news is going to get more bullish, which will draw everyone onto the other side of the boat, saying that we're not going to get a recession. The yield curve is dead. And that is when the yield curve will give the marketplace the old rug pull. It always does. And so I'm sure most of you, you know, again, go back three months, four months, you remember just looking at things and saying, it's just impossible that the recession doesn't happen. Now, you know, it's impossible that the Fed continues to raise rates. That's just not going to happen. Sure enough, it did. Sure enough, it did. And then back then, you know, not that I placed any bets based on that, but I wouldn't have blamed you if you would have, because it just seemed that everything that that was uh, all the facts, all the data just screamed the, the recession, therefore, Fed going to pause or maybe pivot even by the end of 2022. But sure enough, they've, they've kept hiking. Now they're at 4.5. Who knows? They might even get above the, the high watermark in the two-year at 4.75, maybe up to past five. And so, I mean, that's the lesson learned here. And that, that's just me giving a, a personal example as to why we need to be so cognizant of our natural flaws based on the human condition and that we are hardwired. Everyone is, for heaven's sake. Sam Druckenmiller is, or Stan Druckenmiller, excuse me. Uh, Jim Rogers, I mean, the best of the best are hardwired as human beings to make these mistakes. It's just they're so darn good and they've got so much experience and they know themselves so well that they don't make the mistakes. They don't take the action based on what their insides are telling them or, you know, what their emotions are screaming at them inside of their head. It's, it's an interesting game. You know, this, this investing in stock market, bond market, any market, financial markets, and it's just, uh, what is it called? The pain trade. And I think there's something to that. So anyway, let's keep going here.
I think gold rallied during the last debt ceiling crisis, but the situation of the Fed funds is different with cross currents today. Do you have any view on gold price in the near term? No, I mean, I never really have any price on anything in the near term. Um, if I just had to throw out a guess, probably down. I mean, it's a coin toss, but uh, it's in near term, you know, how are you defining near term? Next three months, yeah. I mean, within the next three months, I'd say probably down. I think, yeah, I think you're going to get more good news over the next month or two. And that the more good news we get, the more the market thinks Fed raises, the more gold price goes down, dollar up. And then you get the rug pull, and then that's when gold shoots. But are we going to get that rug pull within three months? Maybe, but that's probably that'd probably be my base case about three months or so. But so the next month or two, I would say my my best guess would be down. People who think the dumpster fire is about over are delusional. The fire is just getting started. I hope everyone here. Or oh, sorry, I'm just. I'm just going to, I forgot I'm actually answering questions and not reading your comments. <laughs> uh, has the lowering of interest rates since the mid 80s increased level of feminism? Hmm. So I'm really trying to think of a way that it would have increased. I mean, initially, I would probably say no, but hmm. I think the level of welfare has increased feminism. I mean, there's so many things that have gone. And what, what, how are you defining feminism as well? Is it this third wave feminism nonsense, or is it some maybe the more legitimate feminism that we've seen in the past? I mean, the only way I could think of is if you had interest rates lower, you would have ah, welfare, but that's about voting. I think that's a stretch. I, I would be open to arguments based on. What has happened with macroeconomics and how that has led to more feminism. But I think me just right off the cuff here, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Now, I all but that said, I think there's a lot of macroeconomic, a lot of the macroeconomic environment we have had since the 1980s, I think has led to the uh, young males being disenfranchised to a far larger degree than they were when I was growing up. That, yeah, see, that. I think, because I would argue that if you would not have had interest rates at 0% since 2008, let's say, you probably wouldn't have had a lot of these social media companies. Like, would we have Instagram? I, I think that's a coin toss. Would we have Uber? Would we have Tesla? Maybe. And people can say, well, these companies make money. You know, Tesla makes money now. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I'm not saying it's a horrible company. It's, everyone's got their opinion on that. But what I am saying is, would have would it have been funded in the first place if the ten year Treasury never would have been below like seven percent? Uh, I I don't know. I, I think that's that would be a good debate. And if you would not have had something like Instagram, I I think far fewer young men would be disenfranchised. Would be would 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 have that sense of hopelessness. Um, why? Because they can't get a date, for heaven's sakes. They can't get a date. And it's, I think that's one of the reasons why you see so much trolling on the internet, because it gives young males a sense of significance when in the real world, outside of the internet, their life seems meaningless. And uh, for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is because they can't get a date. And when I mean they, obviously I'm not talking about all of them, 
but what I but what I'm referring what you have to understand is the as social media, especially Instagram, has become more and more popular, it gives uh, women access to guys that are far more successful. Because you got to think about that. Prior to let's just say the internet, you know, as a young lady, how would you meet a guy? You would pretty much be just restricted to the young men that lived in your area. Okay. So you're, 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 you're gonna have a lot of options, right? But you're not going to have limitless options. And if, if you read Rollo's book, the rational male, you know, that women usually make their decisions based on hypergamy. And when you actually kind of think that through, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know that anyone would even really argue that. And other than if they are just trying to just trying to argue for the sake of arguing. So then you you have Instagram now and uh, th- those same young ladies, they, they can meet guys that are in Miami. They can meet guys that are in Dubai. They can meet guys that are all over the world. So if, if they're able to meet, you know, a 25 year old guy that's in Miami, that's making a million dollars a year, um, you know, are they going to give that that guy that's in their neighborhood that's 25 years old that's making 30 grand a year? Are they going to give him the time of day? And you say, George, you're being incredibly shallow. It's all about love and this and this. Yeah, I know. For a lot of people, it is. But you know, people who always say that, I always ask them, you know, of all the lady friends that you have that are single and let's say in their 30s, uh, how many of them have fallen in love with a guy that works at McDonald's? And usually what you get is crickets. I say, this is my point. Why? Why? If love is so mysterious and magical and you just can't help it, you just can't help who you fall in love with. You just never know where you're going to find your soulmate. Really? Why is it that successful women in their 30s never, ever, ever find their soulmate working at Chipotle? Because, because, because women like to date sideways and up. It's, it's just when you're honest about it, it's obvious. And uh, when women have access to guys that, let's just be frank, are, are a lot more successful in other areas, you know, because of the internet, they can slide into their DMs or whatever you want to call it. Then what you have is more and more and more women vying for a smaller and smaller fraction of guys because they're the super, super successful that now they have access to. So what does that do to all the other young guys that would have had a chance at dating some of those women? Now they have zero chance. And I think they recognize this. And what do you do? You just get pissed off at the world. and You go be a, a MGTOW or whatever it is. Or just You realize that you're an incel and it's just go online and troll or, or let's, let's, let's be tribal or, or let's do these nihilistic types of, uh, I guess, outcries. Um, yeah, that, I would argue, in a roundabout way, that this phenomenon that we're seeing, that could be a result of artificially low interest rates, taking it back to the macro. But as far as feminism, I'm sure there's a, a, someone who's thought of an angle for that, uh, maybe in someone in Rolo's space or like Rich Cooper's space, but just right off the top of my head, I can't think of one. In Ireland, George, 21 properties greater than 200 square feet for sale, four plus bed countrywide. Got to be reduced planning law. What? I think what you're saying in Ireland, 
there's more than 21 properties that are 200 square feet for sale that are four bed that can't be right four bedrooms that are 200 square feet i'm not following that one you talked before about istanbul and its equity market but what do you think of getting into real estate it was pretty expensive i mean my first rule of international real estate is you've got to go there and do the boots on the ground research you've got to become a local expert if you don't you're you're most likely going to get burned you're going to weigh overpay and then if you do make money it's just going to be complete luck so that would be my number one rule but then just from my quick due diligence it, it seems that in the overall market now it's not to say that you can't find opportunities if you are a local expert but it, it seems just the market in general has gone up very substantially because like you always see with the beginning stages or mild call it hyperinflation we'll just call it super extreme levels of inflation is the property mar- market usually goes up even in real terms because everyone wants to get out of cash and into an hard into a hard asset you've seen this in argentina uh, you've seen it here in Colombia, and uh, we've seen it play out in Turkey that you would think that, oh my gosh, you know, 60% inflation, the economy sucks, and therefore housing is going to crash. And usually what you see is the exact opposite, that real estate goes up quite substantially in real terms until you get that hyperinflation. And then, you know, the whole country just implodes like we've seen in Venezuela. And then the prices just plummet in real terms. And um, that's kind of the phenomenon that I noticed in Istanbul. Now, I think there's other reasons, though, for potentially considering real estate. I think it's a very cheap way to get a second passport. And, uh, you know, if I had to spend $400,000 on real estate in St. Kitts and Nevis or spend $400,000 on real estate in Istanbul, even if the real estate in Istanbul was, you know, quote unquote, expensive, if my main driver, to get the real estate was to get the passport, I'd take Istanbul over St. Kitts and Nevis any day of the week, even though it's expensive. So you see, it all really depends on what your main motivation is as well. But just kind of my very simple analysis, it's uh, it's a little expensive in real terms. And I don't think you're, from what I saw, the RV ratios didn't really make sense. It's definitely not cheap like you would expect. And also, what I assumed when I went there is that they would be in financial duress, that, that it would, the, the difficulty with the economy would be apparent everywhere. Didn't see it at all. What I saw was a booming city. To me, it looked like a booming economy. It was crazy. I, I didn't see much homelessness. I, I just saw people going to work, people thriving. It's, it's almost like the inflation wasn't really impacting them because they got like so used to it that they're like, yeah, so what? Inflation, who cares? I'm just taking all my savings and I just buy dollars or euros or gold. So who cares what the lira is doing? Price is going up. So what? You know, I'm, my wages are going up. If I have anything left over at the end of the month, I just put into dollars, euros, gold. My savings isn't really being impacted. So I'm not, I'm, I'm exaggerating here. They weren't saying, oh, just so what? But they were figuring out ways to to still get by. It, it wasn't like you know the the economy was just crumbling yet. Obviously, if if that inflation goes to a thousand percent, ten thousand percent, things things change. But as of right now, the economy was it seemed to be still doing pretty darn well. So my point now, 
granted, I, I don't know what's happened since the earthquake. And obviously that's just an unbelievable tragedy. But uh, when I was there a month ago or whatever, there there wasn't that, well, with the earthquake, I don't even want to use that term, but th- things weren't uh, super, super cheap. People weren't fire selling things because uh, the economy was crumbling. Question, can you go over how the inverted yield curve could be wrong? The only, I think the best argument that I could give you for the yield curve being wrong, I don't think it's wrong, but here's the best argument I could give you. If you go back and look at the middle of, or the beginning of 2022, and I've done a couple whiteboard videos on this, so I'd strongly suggest watching those last two. I think I talked about this, this specific chart. You'll notice the only net buyer of treasuries is the average Joe, the the U.S. retail investor. Why? Because now all of a sudden there's this, because of quantitative easing and the system being flushed with reserves, there's this huge delta between what they can get in a checking account or savings account, deposit account, basically with a bank, and what they can get with a six-month T-bill. And most of you on this live stream know that that is a very recent phenomenon. If you go back prior to the GFC, if Fed funds was at 5%, you're most likely getting 4.5, 4.7% on a checking account, maybe maybe more on a savings account. So my point is when the Fed would raise the overnight rate, the check, the deposit rates that the bank would pay you would go up pretty much at the same rate. There'd always be a bit of a delta there, a bit of a spread, but they'd go up with the Fed funds. But what we have seen since Jerome Powell has started to raise interest rates, what back in 2022, the beginning of 2022, is the Fed raises rates, but the amount that you're getting paid in the bank barely does anything. So it's it's this artificial manipulation of the free market. And as a result, where most people would just be in their savings account, now they're like, ah, I'm going into treasuries, I'm buying whatever I can. 10-year T-bills, whatever. Because now all of a sudden, although it's less than the rate of inflation, I can actually get a a decent yield on a treasury, 5%. So when you look at a chart, so let me back up here. M1 is comprised of currency and circulation, checking accounts, and savings accounts. The way they term savings accounts, I, I forgot. I had it up on my whiteboard. Yeah, I guess I erased it. But there's that third category that doesn't say savings accounts, but like 95% of that is savings accounts. And you'll notice this is the reason M1, that one savings account column is the reason M1 has gone down. And it's also, by the way, the reason M2 has gone down because every other metric that makes up those numbers has actually gone up, right? But it's just that savings has gone down to such a massive degree. In fact, if my memory serves me right, since April 2022 or from April 22 to December 2022, savings, the the aggregate savings account balances in the United States went down by 1.2 trillion. And those, and and you say, well, George, people are drawing down their savings. No, because that would have been picked up in the other components of M1 or the other components of M2. So where, what they did basically is they took their savings and they bought treasuries or they put it in a money market fund. So then you have to ask the question, okay, well, if there's this this artificial demand because of quantitative easing and because of that delta between what the banks are paying you and what 
you can get to treasury. And does that, how does that impact the curve, right? And we know that there's an inverse relationship between prices and the yield. So if you have all of these people, U.S. retail investors, that, are, that would have just kept their money in the bank, but now all of a sudden they're taking their money out and they're moving that into treasuries, that's going to be a lot more demand. And theoretically, I think there's an argument that that much excess demand, artificial demand created by the central planners could have brought rates yields down to a level that would actually invert the curve, assuming they're buying more of the long end. I'm not saying that's what's happening. I'm not saying that's why the curve is inverted. I'm only giving you what I think would be a, the best argument for why the yield curve is wrong. If I, if I had to give you, uh, if I had to play debate guy, right. And just, and, and on one side, I, I'm debating why the yield curve still matters. Then you put me on the other team and said, okay, George, now your job is to debate why it's broken. <laughs> that that's the argument I get. I give you. Hey guys, I want to remind you to get your tickets to rebel capitalist live. This is the live conference I do twice per year with all of your favorite speakers from the Rebel Capitalist Show and experts in investing, commodities, real estate, freedom, and liberty. All of your favorite topics, all of your favorite speakers. The next Rebel Capitalist Live is going to be in Miami and tickets increase in price as we get closer to the event. So go to rebelcapitalistlive.com right now to get your tickets to the next Rebel Capitalist Live. It's the conference you cannot afford to miss. It'll help you increase your financial freedom and more importantly, your personal freedom. You'll get intel that you won't hear anywhere else. Past speakers have included icons in macroeconomics, investing, and personal freedom and liberty. People like Dr. Ron Paul, Robert Kiyosaki, Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden, Jeff Snyder, Richard Werner, Mark Moss, Lynette Zhang, and Robert Breedlove, just to name a few. So once again, go to Rebel Capitalist Live right now and get your tickets today. Okay. Oh, here's a question. I believe rates have ended their 30-year bear market in a previous, uh, yeah, so so rates have, okay, yeah, so I, just to be super clear here, you believe that the 30, 40-year down cycle in interest rates has ended. In a previous economy where rates were so low and everyone highly leveraged, wait a minute here, in a previous economy where rates were so low and everyone, including countries, are highly leveraged in debt, what is your take? So I guess the question is, if we are at the end of the interest rate down cycle we have seen since the 1980s, and we have now gone into an interest rate up cycle, how does that impact the economy? It's, it's, it's bad times. That's my short answer. But what I would encourage you to think through is interest rates never go up in a straight line, nor does inflation. It always happens in waves. So it's not like we bottomed out at zero and now we're just going from 
zero to two to now we're at 4.5 and we're going to go to five and we're going to go to six and we're just going to go straight back to Paul Volcker and 19%. It's not how it works. So what we're get, what we do waves, you know, it goes from zero to five, then back down to one then back up to six then back down to two and maybe, you know, back up to five and then down to three and then back up to seven and then down to, you know, 2.5. And then you just kind of gradually make higher highs and higher lows, but it, it doesn't just go straight up, which is what most people kind of think they, they, they have like, they think of interest rates and inflation in like binary terms, right? So if you have inflation, well, it's just got to go up forever. <laughs> so I think the 2020s is going to be an inflationary decade, but within that decade, I think you're going to have spurts, def obviously going to have spurts of disinflation, and you might even have periods of, of flat out deflation. I just tweet or retweeted uh, something that my good friend Lynn Alden put out, also going to be at Rebel Capitalist Live. And she, no, she, she, no, let me actually read it to you because um, she really nails this as usual. She says, a, a problem, a related problem, is most people's mental models for inflation was the 1970s. And that is primary, primarily lending-driven inflation, boosted by fiscal Vietnam and great society. Whereas the 1940s, and in her view, the 2020s, and Europe in the 20, uh, 1920s, is inflation primarily fiscal-driven, meaning government deficit spending. And I could not agree with this more. So most people, well, let me rephrase that. I think studying the 1940s just as much as you study the 1970s in trying to predict what may happen in the 19, or excuse me, in the 2020s would be well worth your time. Well worth your time. Because if I had to just give you my base case here, I, I think you're going to see something that's more similar to the 1940s than the 1970s. And to her point, Everyone is just 1970s, 19. In fact, I heard my good buddy Peter Schiff on his most recent podcast. I was listening to that at the golf course today, and uh, I always love to listen to Peter's podcast. But you know what he was doing is he was specifically going over the 1970s and using that as an example as to why the Fed has not risen interest rates high enough to combat inflation long-term. And if you just look at the 70s, obviously he's got a great point, but I think you got to look at the 1940s and say, hmm, 1947, we had inflation at 19%, 19. And two years later, we had negative two. I know a lot of people say, oh, George, you can't compare the 1940s. We had World War II and we had this and we had price controls and blah, 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 blah. Right, okay. But in the 2020s, we had a global pandemic <laughs> where the government shut down every single economy and locked you in a cage. And then deficit spent to the tune of $5 trillion here in the United States. And they did that around the entire world. So I think that is more similar to World War II than the 1970s. But uh, main point there is wh whether you look at a chart of the 1970s or you look at the chart of the 1940s, as far as inflation, it's still not straight up. It's up, down, up, down, up, down. And uh, I think 
those downs could include deflation in the 2020s, which is why I tend to kind of favor the 1940s as opposed to the 1970s when I'm trying to do a comparative analysis. Do you think the data is being manipulated so they can try to avoid a recession by tricking everyone that the economy is not as bad as it is? I think there's something to that. I mean, obviously, they do this with the unemployment numbers. They do this with the CPI. I think that only works to a certain degree because I think once it gets bad enough, it's just unavoidable. People have to, people just recognize it. And then the politicians just can't keep lying because it's it's just so obvious they are lying. And then it's kind of like a cost-benefit analysis for them. But when we get to that point, I, I don't know. I have no idea. And you've got to remember that recessions are never called in real time by the central planners because they think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, giving them the benefit of the doubt, assuming they're not just straight evil. But they, they believe, well, if I say there's a recession now, people aren't going to spend as much money. Aggregate demand is going to go down. And even if we are in a recession, it's going to make it even worse. So I need to pretend we're not in a recession so people will keep spending to the best of their ability. So we keep aggregate demand up as high as possible. And then once it's just absolutely, totally obvious, and we're looking at the rear view mirror, we'll say, oh yeah, by the way, six months ago, we started a recession. I mean, go back to the GFC. They weren't claiming that we were in a recession and like right in the middle of 2008. In fact, even after Lehman Brothers went bust uh, and Bear Stearns, I think they, they were still like, oh no, no, not a recession. It's probably soft landing. But once it gets to a point where just the, everything you know it's like that leslie nielsen gif have you guys seen that one where he's like got the fire and like everything's just like blowing up behind him and he's like oh nothing to see here or whatever it says on the meme that's usually the way it works with the central planners uh, they do that to the very end until the flames are just so huge that they're they, they just have to admit it and again when do we get to that point? Is it in 2023? Is it the beginning of 2024? I don't know. I'm not sure. But I'm sure they're using a, a, a massaging <laughs> of the data to try to achieve the objective. What do I think is keeping liquidity so high? Treasury? I mean, what, how much time have we got left? 20 minutes? This, this could take the entire Q&A. So what you're referring to is the TGA being drawn down. And if you've got the TGA being drawn down, that means that Janet Yellen is writing checks and those checks go out into the real economy. The bank reserves go from the TGA back into the banking system. And then when those people take those checks or those entities in the real economy, they deposit it, it increases M2 money supply, therefore, quote unquote, increases liquidity. You've got to be careful with that one because you don't know how or who is being paid by Janet Yellen to bring down that TGA. So let me give you an example. The Fed has decreased the size of their balance sheet by, oh, I don't know, 500 billion or, or something like that over the last, let's just call it six, nine months. And now I, I don't know if they're doing all mortgage-backed securities or if they've got some treasuries in there, but let's just assume for a moment that there are some treasuries that they've allowed to mature and roll off their balance sheet. All right, well, it's just like you holding a treasury. And that if you hold a, let's say a six month T-bill, 
it's $1,000. And at the end of that six months, you get back your principal plus the interest you are guaranteed. And how does how do you get paid? Janet Yellen pays you out of the TGA. Okay. And so when Janet Yellen pays you, it's that same process. The bank reserves go from the TGA into the banking system. And then your checking account balance increases by the $1,000 or whatever it was. And therefore, uh, more reserves, more M2. Well, when the Fed gets paid, Janet Yellen doesn't give them money. What happens? They just simply reduce the amount of reserves in Janet Yellen's account, i.e. the TGA. It's just like you paying your bank. When you, let's say you have a deposit account with Wells Fargo and you make your car payment, 500 bucks. It's not like there's money that goes from you to Wells Fargo, right? It's it's So in other words, uh, their balance sheet, the asset side of their balance sheet doesn't somehow increase as a result of you paying them $500. Uh, what happens is just the liability side of their balance sheet decreases by 500. So when you pay them, they take your payment and they say, okay, we're going to go ahead and reduce the amount of currency units you have in your account by the $500. So they just reduce the, the liability side of their balance sheet. It doesn't impact the asset side. And it's the same thing with the Fed. They just reduce the amount of bank reserves that are in Janet Yellen's account. So theoretically, you could have that drawdown. And let's just assume for a moment that Janet Yellen spent the $400 billion drawdown by 100% of it went to pay off the Fed. Well, th- that would not impact that the bank's access to reserves one bit, not even one penny. And then it wouldn't impact M1. It wouldn't impact M2. Those bank reserves just go to bank heaven or bank reserve heaven and they're done. And that's how the Fed gets paid. So so my point there is you could have a massive drawdown in the TGA and where everyone is like, oh my gosh, that's all going into the economy. If it's going to pay the Fed, none of it is. It's not even going to the banks. It's just gone. And let's think through if she's paying the banks, let's say they've got treasuries that are maturing. Okay, well, then the reserves go from the TGA into the banking system. But what happens to M1, M2? Nothing. Zero. Nada. Doesn't impact it at all. Because Janet Yellen is paying a banking entity, not a non-bank. So how much of of what she's drawing down is going to non-bank entities? That I don't know. And then you've got to ask the question, how is having cash from a liquidity standpoint different than a treasury? So when we view this, we usually view it as, you know, just an average Joe or average Jane. And that if you have this treasury, let's say this is a treasury, and uh, it's just, you can't really spend it, can't really do anything with it. But when you sell the treasury or it matures, now all of a sudden, you've got a pile of cash that you can go out and spend. And that circulates in the economy. Therefore, there's more liquidity. And that is true if you're an average Joe. But if you're a hedge fund, if you're a financial institution, if you're, uh, and I'm not even using banking entities purposely, right? But if you're in the, the financial economy, which most of the entities that are that own these treasuries, I think you, know, you would consider them in the financial economy. Even though we said that on net balance, the only buyers are U.S. retail, it doesn't mean that they own the majority of the treasuries. So assuming that uh, Janet Yellen is is paying off, let's say, a hedge fund. Okay, well, they had treasuries. Now they have cash. But does that mean that there's any more liquidity? I would argue no. Why? Because this assumes the hedge funds could not have taken those treasuries and just repoed them 
instantly and gotten cash. It assumes they couldn't have sold them. What it assume, and when you think about what it assumes, it's kind of like it's it's funny, but yet people just use that term so often. I don't think we really ever sit back and like, wait a minute, that, does that really add liquidity? So if you're this hedge fund, you've got these treasuries, and you're like, oh my gosh, I wish I could buy stocks. I wish I could buy stocks, but I can't because I've just got these stupid treasuries right here. If only the Fed would come in and or Janet Yellen would pay me the principal, then I would have the cash to go out and buy the stocks that I want. Yeah, said no hedge fund ever <laughs> or pension fund or what. Of course, they, if they want to buy the stocks, they buy the stocks. They just they just repo out those those treasuries. So my point is, unless you're an average Joe and Jane, and by the way, let's just say you are an average Joe and Jane and that you own those treasuries in your brokerage account. You don't think those 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 brokerages are taking those and and uh, and rehypothecating them? Maybe, maybe not. And if they are, hey, those treasures are just as liquid or offer just as much liquidity as the cash. So when we really get into the plumbing, we we start to realize that uh, there, there's a lot of very important nuance to liquidity. I just saw a tweet from someone else that I don't know that said. China injected whatever two trillion dollars in liquidity. Really, how? How? Show me the transfer mechanism. Because when you actually go through the transfer mechanism, you realize that maybe they did, but maybe they didn't. It all depends how they injected liquidity. If they just did QE with banks, that's not really injecting liquidity because you're assuming that the bank's balance sheets were somehow constrained by a lack of reserves to begin with. And if, if, if you're coming from this, from the angle that the bank's balance sheets are never really constrained, then you're like, well, if they're never constrained and now all of a sudden they have more reserves, how does that really impact their, their balance sheet capacity? It, it doesn't. And therefore, it c- can we ever add liquidity to the banks? And there, the, I think the, again, difficult question but in normal times, I would say no, because it's just a matter of counterparty risk. If the banks want to make a loan, if they want to create, quote unquote, liquidity, if they think they're going to get paid and they're going to make a profit on it, the banks are going to create more liquidity than you can even imagine. They're not going to need the Fed to create liquidity. They're going to do that on their own. Now, I think there's an argument saying, well, if the counterparty risk, the perceived counterparty risk really goes up where the banks won't do anything. And then the Fed steps in. Yes, then I think that they're adding liquidity, very uh, similar to what they did during the Cerveza sickness, where they set up that SPV, that special purpose vehicle, to buy corporate debt. That was adding liquidity. Because now, to be clear, it's not like the banks couldn't have added liquidity. They could have, but there's no way they would have because they thought it was too risky. So the Fed had to step in and do it. But see, when people say that the Fed is adding liquidity, they're 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 insinuating, or they're implying that uh, the, the Fed is doing something that the system isn't capable of doing by itself. And so, uh, great question. I could again, I could go off on that for another half hour, but I think what your the, the basis for your question is really the TGA, and hopefully, I was able to give you some insights there. What do you think will be a greater challenge to the U.S. war in Ukraine? taking down China? Well, I mean, assuming that 
the United States tries to take down China, I mean, it would be China. I mean, this is Ukraine is completely insignificant compared to a war between the United States and China. I mean, obviously, Ukraine is a proxy war. It's just it's basically the U.S. against Russia. But boy, the, the U.S. In, an, in, an, in a direct war with China, oh my gosh, that that would be nobody wants that. No, nobody wants that other than just the crazy Malthusian cult. I don't even think there's a lot of politicians that, that want that. I don't think China wants that. I don't think it, it might be unavoidable, but they, 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 they're, they, they're smart enough to know what, what that means. And unless they, they want to depopulate the earth in a significant way, I think they'll, they'll, they'll try to avoid that. And again, obviously I'm assuming those political leaders are not part of the global elite Malthusian cult. Maybe they are. But uh, a war between the U.S. and China would be I mean, absolutely catastrophic, even from a standpoint of macro. I mean, just go, just try going to Target tomorrow or try going to Home Depot or Walmart and, and try spending $100 buying nothing but goods that were made in the United States. You might be able to do it. You're going to have a hard time. So just think of all that stuff not being there. And you're like, George, that would crush the Chinese economy. Yeah, it would. There's no winners here. There's just losers. And so my answer is that a greater challenge to the United States in the world would be a war with the U.S. and China. This is an interesting question. Other than needing a cold climate of Switzerland to survive, I think that's kind of a joke. What is the biggest weakness of the World Economic Forum and the lizard people? I think that's actually a, a, a serious question. And I think it's their own arrogance. Their own arrogance and their own hubris. If you go back to the lockdowns and the medicine mandates, I think they they got the lockdowns. So, you know, kudos to them. I'm sure they were feeling great about that. And then they started doing the mandates. And I'm, I, I think they just got drunk with, with power. They're like, oh my gosh, our Malthusian dreams are coming to reality. We're taking all the power, all the control over the plebs and the plebeians. And, and we're going to enslave everybody. And we're going to, it's going to be the great reset agenda. You're going to own nothing. And we're going to do that by 2023. Forget this 2030 nonsense. Look at how the slaves are just bowing down and just cowering in fear and doing whatever we want them to do just based on this Cerveza sickness narrative. Look at how easy this is to manipulate the masses. So they went from lockdowns or just promoting this. And then they're like, ah, oh, well, let's just, let's push it further. Let's see how far we can uh, push these people before they push back. And they're like, man, we never thought they'd be, we, they'd go for lockdowns. And they actually, a lot, most of people, especially in California, heck, we didn't even have to convince them. They were demanding that we lock them in a cage. How easy was that? So, boy, if we can lock them in a cage, let's just try to, I don't know, let's just try to make that medicine mandatory. I mean, there's no way they'll go for that, but maybe. Let's just push our luck. And then you see it come out in San Francisco. Then you see it come out in Canada. Then you see it come out in Australia. Then you see it come out in places like New York City. And then you see the government, the U.S. government, force that upon their employees. You see the airlines, and you're the global elite, and now all of a sudden, you're just giddy. Like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is the most incredible year of my entire life. I didn't even think they'd go for lockdowns. And then they actually went for these medicine mandates. In fact, 
a lot of these people are even cheering for the medicine mandates. Oh my gosh. We thought we'd have to wait till 2030 to rule the world, but maybe now it's going to come to fruition. I don't know. In, in the next year or two, what, what can we do to push it further? I mean, why wait till 2030 when we could have this right now? We could wipe out pop, half the population in the next year or two. Why do we have to wait till 2050? Forget that nonsense. We've got these plebs right where we want them. Now, if we can, we obviously got them to inject a foreign substance into their body just to keep their job. So now let's make them do it with their kids. Yeah, woohoo. And once we convince them to do it with their kids, maybe we can get all of them to demand that everyone else that doesn't want to do it for their kids should be forced to by law. Oh, this would just be incredible. Then just think how close we are to world domination and all of our Malthusian objectives. If we can get people to inject a foreign substance into the body of their children, just think what we can do by convincing them or forcing them to do a climate change lockdown or to use or to start eating bugs. That's going to be child's play. If we can actually get them to inject a foreign substance into the bodies of their two-year-old, I think that was the hubris. And what happened is they took it too far. They took it too far too fast. And people were like, okay, you're going to lock me in a cage? So be it. This might be scary. I don't know what Cervasa sickness is, but we'll go with it. And then they're like, okay, you want me to inject a foreign substance into my body just so I can keep my job? Whatever. Just let me get back to the football game. But when they said inject it into my kid, that's when and the people on the left and the right, most of them, the average Joe and average Jane said, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. My kid? No. That ain't happening. No, 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 you've gone too far. And that's when you saw people really start to push back is when you started messing with their kids. So my point is, what's the next crisis that they're going to try to leverage? I don't know. But their biggest weakness is that hubris that they, I believe, they displayed going from lockdowns to mandates to, to trying to mandate it for little kids. And if they display that hubris again, that's one of our greatest tools because that's what unifies all the people to come together and really push back against the central planners and the authoritarians. But the reason, one of the main reasons I am so outspoken and one of the main reasons I do the Rebel Capitals channel is to try to get people to come together and push back without the global elite having to force them across that line. So great question. All right, guys, uh, I've got to get to the Rebel Capitalist Pro, so no shout-outs this evening. Just make sure you check out Rebel Capitalist Live to get your tickets for May 12th to the 14th, Orlando. I'll see you in the next video. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out the Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to the George Gammon YouTube channel.